Well, I want to say a happy Sunday morning to all of you as well as a happy Father's Day to everyone out there today. I want to begin today with a fun Father's Day memory for me. When our oldest daughter Danica was four years old, we decided that we were going to take her to the movies for the first time. We went to go see this movie, Disney's Enchanted. Danica was in the height of her princess era and she was so excited to go see this first run movie in the movie theater. But we had been warned by some other people who had taken their young children to the movies that maybe you don't want to bring your child in for the previews. That sometimes even when it's a family Disney, family friend, friendly film and that's really easy for me to say. Maybe that that's the kind of thing that you don't want them to see the Pirates of the Caribbean trailer when they're that young. And so we decided that Danica and I would be in charge of concessions and we would stand outside and we had a tub of popcorn that was the size of like a bathtub and a huge giant Sprite and she and I are waiting outside. Kelly's gone in to watch the previews and to give us the A-OK -okay via our smartphones to let us know that it's safe to come in and to watch the movie. And so we're waiting outside and it takes a while for those previews to happen and Kelly starts texting me, this is so right, I have never seen such intense trailers. And I'm like, really, before a Disney movie? They shouldn't be that intense. And then another one happens and another one happens and it, the movie trailers are almost like 20 minutes and Danica is waiting and waiting to go inside. Well, we never made it inside before all of a sudden we started hearing screaming in the movie theater and girls in princess costumes came running out of the theater, followed by their parents, people screaming at the top of their lungs, so angry, looking for anybody to yell at. For you see, they had accidentally switched up the movies that they were supposed to show in that theater. Instead of showing Disney's Enchanted, they started showing No Country for Old Men, which starts out with this really intense murder strangulation scene. And so people came out of the theater, they're so upset, they're rightly upset, and they're looking for somebody to be angry with. Well, eventually they got the right movie on the right reel and we got to go in and we got to watch the movie, but not before we got free refills on all of our popcorn and soda. Is it me or does now feel like we're in the midst of somebody having switched the movies of our lives in our society that we signed up for? We bought a ticket for a Disney movie and yet what seems to be unfolding before us is more like a horror movie. It's a scary film. And we're angry, angry at what we've seen. Who isn't angry by seeing some of the injustice and the horror that has played out through much of our society right now. And it is right to be angry. But here's what you need to know. Anger is a positive emotion that was always meant to turn into something. You're never supposed to stay in the midst of your outrage. 
It kind of reminds me of what's been going on in the news. If you've seen the story of the conflict of what's been happening on the borderlands between India and China. I want to show you a map of the conflict of where this is happening. And yet what you're not able to tell from a map is what the terrain actually looks like. The disputed border from 1962 that India and China are fighting over looks like this. It is a stretch of the Himalayan mountains that averages over 14,000 feet of elevation. In other words, India and China are fighting over a territory that is inhabitable, uninhabitable to human life. In other words, people can go up to those heights for a short period of time, but they always have to come back down. And in fact, most of the soldiers that have died in the recent conflicts over this border have not been from bloodshed of the conflict, but the impact of being at those elevations. Anger is like that. Anger is one of those things that elevates you, but you can't stay there. You can't live there. You've got to come back down. Anger was always meant to be the emotion that tells us that something's got to change. Something's going to be different. And so if you have a loved one that is in danger and you see that, you should get angry. If you have a child that's struggling with an addiction, you should get angry. But you're not supposed to stay angry. You are supposed to move that anger into something else. There's a professor from Wheaton, a wonderful African-American professor from Wheaton who puts it like this. For Christians, rage must eventually give way to hope. And we find the spiritual resources to make this transition at the cross. Jesus could have called down the psalms of rage upon his enemies and shouted a final word of defiance before he breathed his last. Instead, he called for forgiveness. Hope is possible if we recognize that it does not rule out justice. It is what separates justice from vengeance. Howard Thurman wrote in his classic work, Jesus and the Disinherited, about how rage, once unleashed, tends to spill out beyond its intended target and consume everything. The hatred of our enemy that we take to the streets returns with us to our friendships, marriages, and communities. It damages our own souls. And so anger and rage was always meant to be a temporary emotion that something's got to change. And so for us as Christians, we need to be asking the question, how can outrage turn in to hope? In order to answer this question, what I'd like us to do is to think about a famous biblical story. It's the story of Zacchaeus, a story that's often told in vacation Bible schools and Sunday schools, talking about the importance of the man's stature. When the reality is, for the people who would have heard this story, they would have heard his job title, a chief tax collector, and there would have been no more outrageous figure in the New Testament than a chief tax collector. Here is somebody who's in cahoots with the Roman occupying force 
and was getting wealthy over extorting his own people. So he's not only a sellout and a traitor, he is also the Bernie Madoff of his era. And so let's now listen to the word of the Lord, to this famous story, to see what we can do in partnership with Jesus with outrage. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short and he could not see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore fig tree to see him. And since Jesus was coming that way, when Jesus reached to the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I want to talk about today how outrage can turn and become hope. And the first thing we discover in this story is that like Zacchaeus, we have to stop hiding. It's a great little detail that's in the updated form of the translation of the NIV. It's not just a sycamore tree. They call it a sycamore fig tree. And the reason for that is that this is a particular tree in that region that was the symbol of the promise. And according to the rabbinical tradition, this is the very tree behind which Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden created the fig leaves to fashion their own ridiculous form of clothing to hide their shame. Anybody would have heard or known this story in Jesus' day and age would have known that Zacchaeus hiding in a sycamore fig tree was him hiding from the very shame of the original betrayal that took place in the Garden of Eden. A couple of years ago, my family got to journey to Washington, D.C., and we hit some of the highlights of the museums, but one of the museums I had never been to before was this museum. It is the National Museum of the Smithsonian of African American History and Culture. It is an absolutely breathtaking museum. It's in the shape of a slave ship, and the original exhibit takes you down an elevator to the very bottom of that slave ship, what might be the inside hole, and you start to walk through the small maze of the darkness of what might be that slave ship. And you see on the sides of the wall the names and the numbers of the explosion of what happened in colonial America during the slave trade. As you start to make your way through the numbers and the vastness of what happened in that part of our history, there was one little portion of that exhibit that stopped me cold. It was a glass case. And inside that glass case was a pair of adult shackles, a pair 
of shackles for children. But the part that haunted me the most was this image. A little pendant in the form of a shackle. that a white, wealthy slave owner would wear as a source of pride. You can almost imagine the person who owned this waking up in the morning and deciding whether or not that day to wear the cross of Jesus around her neck or to wear the symbol of the status that she owned people. And standing in front of that glass case, I broke and the tears started to fall down my cheeks. We cannot hide from the stain and the pain of the past of this country. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we believe what Tony Evans tweeted this week when he said that racism isn't a bad habit. It isn't a mistake. It is sin. And the answer is not sociology. It's theology. The church plays a unique role in the reconciliation of our society because at the core, at the root of racism is not a mistake, it's not a habit. It is sin. The New Testament talks about being reconciled to God and that he has entrusted to us as his ambassadors, his witnesses, the ministry of reconciliation. This is a part of our call. And we cannot hide from that past, from that shame. And so first, we need to stop hiding. Secondly, We need to get closer. We need to get closer. There's a great little term that sociologists have come up with. It's called motive attribution asymmetry. And basically that's a fancy phrase for that we have this incredible tendency to always assume that our motives are pure in whatever it is that we do but someone else's motives are impure. So I might attribute my motives to whatever I'm doing as loving, but your motives are one of hate. Now, what's interesting is that depending on which society, which culture you're a part of, your level of typical motive asymmetrical attribution is actually dependent on kind of that society. And so there are certain societies, like in the conflict over in Ireland, between Northern Ireland and Ireland, that um, where that asymmetry is at its greatest. And the place that has the greatest amount of motive attribution asymmetry is actually in Israel and Palestine. But what's interesting is they've been charting the United States. 
And the level of asymmetry has been rising every year. And in a recent study, we have discovered that we have almost gotten to the point that our level of distrust in the motives of the other is almost as high in the United States as it is in Israel and Palestine. One time when I was at Bethlehem Bible College, I actually learned of a ministry called Musahala Ministries, which is the Arabic word for reconciliation. And what they do in this particular ministry is they take Israeli students and they take Arabic students and they put them together in this program that their families have to sign up for. And one of the things that they have to do on this journey is they have to go on a literal trip. I wanna show you a blurry picture of one of the things that I've noticed from this trip that's fantastic. They actually put an Arab and Israeli on the same camel and send them out into the wilderness in order to go camping together. Where Ishmael spent time in the wilderness as a child and where famous biblical characters spent time in the wilderness, they to go together into the wilderness. And the founder of this ministry writes this. Regardless of the history we read or the history we know from our own people and families, we must learn to listen to each other. We must hear each other's pain. Our perception of what happened is often just as influential as the truth of what happened. Through listening to one another and hearing each other's stories, we can minimize the gap between what we think and what we know. Jesus not only called Zacchaeus to stop hiding in the tree, Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to stay at your house today. I know this is really tricky when we are still in the throes of a pandemic, but there will be no significant headway made against racism in America until it gets home to home, person to person. And we are able to cut through the layers of asymmetry. In other words, we will not be able to tweet our way through this problem. It will take genuine listening and connection and relationship. And so how does outrage become hope? The first thing is, is that we need to stop hiding. The second thing is, is that we need to get closer and the third thing is, we need to give away. We need to give away. One of the best novels that I read this year was this particular book. It's called American Dirt. And it chronicles the fictitious story of a woman by the name of Lydia, who tragically, tragically began her journey from Acapulco to El Norte. In doing so, Lydia spent a day at a quinceanera party. It was a 15-year-old birthday party, great milestone celebration. But in the midst of this birthday party, the drug leader and cartel came and killed all of her family except for one. Her husband was a journalist and he had written an expose on the new drug lord. And the man had decided to retaliate. 
Fortunately, Lydia and Luca escaped and they started a harrowing journey up towards the north, trying to find their way out of the country to the United States so they might be able to escape the fact that she and her son still had a price on their head. Along the way, she befriends two girls from Guatemala who are making their way up to the north as well. Two teenage girls who have seen more than their fair share of tragedy and injustice. One day while they're riding on the top of a train trying to make their way forward, Mexican immigration officials who are corrupt stop the train and capture everybody aboard. They put them in a warehouse and because Lydia and Luca are Mexican nationals, they're free to go with a small price. Luca, the boy, turns to the immigration official in Mexico and says, what about these two girls? They're about to be sold into slavery. He says that they could be paid for with a price. And Lydia is faced with an option of the life of uncertainty of giving away all that she has or keeping that for the security of her and her boy on their journey? Is her quest gonna be only for her own salvation, but also for the salvation of others? And Lydia hands over her resources so that the two girls might be free. The only thing Lydia discovers that will make its way through the injustice and the horror and the tragedy of the movie of her life will be generosity. It is the only thing that eventually separates her from the cartel who wants to take and to destroy out of greed. It will take generosity to be able to turn outrage and to hope. And I want to be really specific with that generosity today. There's a dream that we've had at Peachtree for a little over a year now, but something that we haven't launched. We've had such a great experience with our summer fellows program that we've wanted to launch a year-long fellows program. In the wake of all that's been going on, we have decided to commit to a multi-ethnic partnership with a sister church that is yet to be named to get a crop of interns together from a variety of backgrounds and demographics and cultures, to work in the partnerships of these churches, to take some young lives that are getting ready to launch post-college and out into the world and to bring them together and to take them on a journey of reconciliation as a part, a significant part of their fellowship. Kelly and I feel so strongly about this that we want the first thousand dollars that is gonna be given to what we're now going to call the Zacchaeus Fellows to come from our family first. Because we firmly believe that unless we stop pretending and hiding and get people closer together, and then we start to give away, that we won't be able to move forward. It's not gonna solve all of our problems. 
But at Peachtree, we want to be in this for the long haul. And I want to invite you to join me in this journey. It's going to take people who are willing to be opening up their homes with an extra bedroom to let somebody to stay for a year. It's going to take people who are willing, if you're a business owner or an executive, to be able to open up internships, part-time work for some of these people to work in your company. It's going to take us working in churches and in our communities to find the collaborative ways and experiences for them to be able to grow and for us to be able to invest in their spiritual lives. It's taken us a long time to get into this problem. And it is going to take a long time to be able to fully experience the grace that God has given to us where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, but we are all one in Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you to join me. This is kind of spontaneous. There's a lot of work to be done, but we'll put a little drop feature on our website to be able to start to marshal the resources, some seed money to be able to mobilize our Zacchaeus fellows. And one of the reasons that this is important to me causes me to circle back to the original story that I told you about when I was talking about a Father's Day memory of going to a movie that had gone bad. Everybody came out of that theater and was looking for somebody to blame, and the person who was working on that holiday was just a 20-year-old teenager who probably was not knowing any better and whose boss didn't show up that day. And so I told... Um, Kelly, that we were going to need to be patient for a little bit while everybody waited in line to berate this teenager. And while they all did that, they just left in anger and in rage. And I waited with patience. And I said, I'm going to need your name, the name of your manager, and the name of the owner of this theater. Because I want to help try to find a system where something like this won't happen again. I think he was unnerved by my calm and the fact that I was asking for his name and the manager's name because he said, well, that may take a little while for me to get. And I said, I will wait. And so I did wait. And I waited and he came out with the card that had their names and numbers on it. And he also came out with 10 free movie tickets, which I promptly gave to my parents because I was in their hometown. I had every intention of following up on that business card and it just fell off the radar. I found that business card about a year later and I threw it away because by then it was too late. One of my fears for what we're going through right now is that when things turn back to normal, that we will forget that the anger that is here is for a reason that something must change and that it must turn into hope. In fact, Rebecca Manley Pippert puts it best when she says it like this. She says, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. The real challenge before us as God's people isn't just whether or not we're upset. It's whether or not 
we will care. And so I want to put this slide up one more time to remind us of what we need to do. That we need to stop hiding. In other words, turning outrage into hope is going to require honesty, confession, repentance. That we're going to have to get closer. In other words, it's going to take a proximity that we don't exhibit in our communities and our relationships right now. And if we want today's outrage to become tomorrow's hope, most of all, we're going to have to, like Zacchaeus, respond with generosity to give it away. That is the only way forward. My dear friends, anger alone, outrage alone can't save us. Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. The Greek word there is for healing. Healing has come to this house. For this man too is a son of Abraham. Let us pray. God, we desperately need your saving power, your healing work in our lives. And I pray, God, that you will pour down your blessing upon us. That you will empower us to be honest, to get close, and to give back. Lord, mobilize us as a church, not just with Zacchaeus Fellows and a new initiative, but in new horizons of what it means to partner with other congregations that might be different than ours. Lord, help us to be not only moved in a moment or angered in a moment, but to give us a sustaining power beyond indifference and difference into the potency of the gospel itself. And so, Father, we ask that you will unite us together and move us ahead. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.